Good morning, everyone. Good to see you guys. Good to be worshiping with you all today. Uh, we're going to be continuing our study through the book of Exodus, and uh, if you've missed uh, a little bit, I'll help with the catch-up. Uh, our uh, Exodus narrative begins with the people of Israel in slavery in Egypt. Uh, God rescues them through the Red Sea and brings them to Mount Sinai, uh, where he formalizes his relationship with them. He says, uh, you will be my children, I will be your king and father, and he does this through the person of Moses. And uh, one day, while Moses and Israel, or excuse me, Moses and God are uh, up on the mountain talking, uh, Israel got busy, and they made the golden calf. And they worshipped the wrong God, and uh, God was understandably upset. And uh, what falls was a number of exchanges between uh, God and Moses about what to do with Israel, and this is where our passage picks up on. And uh, when I was reading this, one of the things that first struck me was uh, how much this talks about God's judgment. And uh, that is to say that God's contempt for human sin. And uh, judgment is something that we have a lot of ambivalence about, I think. We have a lot of feelings, many of them conflicting with each other. If I had to kind of parse out what those feelings are, uh, I would say that sometimes we think uh, there is too little of God's judgment in the world, and that other times there is too much of God's judgment in the world. And uh, ways that we feel there's too little of God's judgment is, is sometimes when you read about these really awful people in history, or you watch documentaries or TV shows on these really awful people who have lived in our own times, they've, and they've, uh, these are people like Genghis Khan, you know, Stalin, Ted Bundy, these types, and they've lived just really corrupt, evil, destructive lives, and they've spent an entire life uh, basically ruining other people's lives. And for some of them, at the very end, they have a kind of deathbed conversion moment. And what we're told is that despite all the evil they've done, despite all the wrong they've caused, uh, they're going to spend the rest of their life enjoying nothing but good things. And when we think about that, it doesn't always seem fair. And it seems like they should be judged a little more harshly for all the things they've done. But there's the opposite problem of it seems like there's too much of God's judgment in the world, and that's uh, people that we all know and love who have uh, been very kind, gentle, compassionate people, people who have devoted their whole lives to caring for other people, and we're told just because they didn't believe in God, uh, they're going to be punished for that. And sometimes that also seems kind of unfair. It's kind of a little bit of the ambivalence that we feel. I think that these are not just conversations that we have in our heads, but these are dialogues that we have in our culture. Uh, I find that increasingly looking at books and, and talks and different things, that the, one of the big problems with Christianity uh, at large is not just that it's untenable or unreasonable, but that Christianity is actually bad for the world. That in some way, uh, uh, Christianity has actually... Uh, added a negative kind of value uh, to our community. And I think of uh, Richard Dawkins, who's a famous atheist. He says in his book, The God Delusion, that the God of the Old Testament, the God that we're reading about in our Exodus series, is a capricious, malevolent bully. You might have heard something like that before. You maybe even thought something like that before. And uh, we don't always feel as strongly as Dawkins, but we do have this kind of ambivalence about God's judgment. What do we do with this? It's all over the Bible, all the New Testament, 
Probably every book of the Bible, every book of the Bible has it. So what do we do with this? And what do we do with some of the, the questions and concerns? So that'll be the topic of, of our uh, reflections over the next few minutes. Exodus 33, one through six. So let me read it to you guys. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying that to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Pezites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord has said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I will consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I might know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and ask that through your spirit it would be for us a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I think there's a, a couple different uh, ways we can kind of get at this and uh, trying to wrestle with this question or problem of, of God's judgment. And uh, we'll, we'll kind of highlight two things. One thing is that we'll talk about um, uh, perhaps how our, our view of God's judgment is a little too narrow. And we need to expand it, we need to grow it, we need to develop it in some way. And we need to move past uh, what might be a caricature of God's judgment to something more biblical and full. And then we're also going to uh, uh, spend some time talking about how we actually internalize this. What are we supposed to do with God's judgment? And so we'll, we'll take it in that order. And I, I think uh, perhaps the big surprise with God's uh, judgment is what it actually consists of. And uh, we think it's kind of this Zeus-like figure throwing lightning bolts from the sky. And uh, what the Bible says is actually something much different. And it says that the, the pinnacle of God's judgment uh, is actually God saying, I won't share a life with you. That actually the Worst thing about God's judgment, him saying, you won't have access to my presence. It tells us in verse three that, uh, well, God's gonna send them to the promised land that I will not go up among you. And uh, it goes on to say that this was a disaster. They didn't respond and say, oh, hey, we knew each other for a few months and that's okay, it didn't work out. But they said, this was the worst thing that could possibly happen to us. God is actually not gonna be with us. So the very worst thing for us is not to have access to God's presence. The Bible says that's awful. And if you think about what this would have meant for an Israelite at their time, uh, God's presence was localized in the tabernacle. And so you know that, that we'd spend a lot of time talking about that in, in this year. And uh, the tabernacle was where somebody, if they messed up, they could take an offering and go make a sacrifice knowing that they would be able to uh, make amends for their sin. They would be able to find God's forgiveness, that they would be able to still have a good relationship with them. And if God's not there, how are they going to actually do that, right? How are they going to do their sacrifices, their offerings? 
And uh, it's, it's even worse than that, that God's presence was kind of the, the main way that they were able to have covenant relationship with him. And so when we talk about God's judgment, we're not just talking about plagues and lightning bolts, but we're actually talking about God looking at us and saying, I can't have you in my life. I can't be in your life. And the Bible tells us that's an awful thing. But there's this other element to it. Not only does uh, God do that, does he uh, have to move away from us, but also that God uh, gives us to our own desires. And that's another aspect of God's judgment, that he lets us have the things that we want. And it may not be immediately obvious that that's a bad thing, because I want a lot of things. I want ice cream, and I want happiness, and I would like a million dollars. (laughs) So to be judged by God doesn't mean we're necessarily going to get those things. Uh, But what it does mean is that God's going to give us to our selfish impulses. That in some way, those impulses are going to have their way with us. And you see how uh, Exodus talks about the, how God actually talks about Israel. He says in verse 3 that they weren't doing stiff-necked things, but that they had actually become a stiff-necked people. That their stiff-neckedness was somehow their definition, their nature in some way. The Apostle Paul picks this up in Romans, and he says in the first chapter, talking about actually what God's judgment is, that Uh, In God's judgment, he gives people up to the lusts of their hearts. That is to say that the things that we're most passionate about, the selfish things, uh, are what eventually be our end, turn out to be our end. I like how C.S. Lewis puts it in his book, The Great Divorce. He says this, there are only two kinds of people uh, in the end. There are those who say to God, thy will be done. And there are those who God says to, thy will be done. It's a very C.S. Lewis-ism. And um, that second group of people is the people that are experiencing God's judgment. Uh, when I was uh, reading this, I was thinking about um, uh, the Christmas Carol. It's, you know, the season right now. And I've never read the book. I've seen the Muppets movie a dozen times. I love it. I'll probably once or, watch it once or twice again this season. And... Um, you all know that the antagonist is Ebenezer Scrooge. And he says humbug, and he's this really kind of selfish, miserly moneylender. And um, he loves money more than anything else, so greed's his, his big uh, problem. And uh, he's uh, kind of made a mess of his life. He's kind of an isolated person. Uh, a lot of people don't like him, but he gets this rare opportunity to catch a, a vision, a glimpse of what's going to happen in his future life. And so the ghost of Christmas future, I think, uh, comes and visits him. And he sees uh, one year into the future, and it's awful. Tiny Tim is dead, of course. And he visits his future grave, and it's completely unattended. There's no flowers. The weeds are overgrown. His business has been devoured, and his name is now a public joke. And what he realizes is that it's his greed that's ruined him. His selfish impulse for money was actually his downfall. And of course, he uh, wakes up from this uh, dream or vision and and, uh, changes his life around. But Ebenezer got a little taste of God's judgment in some way. He got a little taste of his own medicine. And I think in, in some ways, this is different, how we, uh, different than how we typically think about judgment. Um, you know, it is God both saying, I can't be part of 
what you're doing. I can't have a share in your life and that we're left to our own devices. But part of the beauty of this is that it's, it's never just judgment, that there's always kind of a uh, uh, mercies just around the corner. And uh, you guys ever read that book, Talk to a Frog and Toad as a kid? You know, they're looking for spring, it's just around the corner. You know, it's kind of God's mercies are just around the corner. And uh, we, we see this in the passage, it says, if for a single moment, God is saying this, if for a single moment I, God, should go up among you, I will consume you. So now take off your ornaments so that I may know what to do with you. And uh, there's all sorts of mercies all over here. You know, God certainly doesn't want to destroy them. He could and maybe even should destroy them, but he doesn't want to. He wants to figure out a way to spare them. And more than that, this promised land that they had hoped for, this great, good, beautiful thing that they were heading towards, he said, I'm still going to give that to you. You guys can still have that. But even better, he opens up something around the corner. There's potentially an opportunity to look around and see his mercy around the next corner. When you read on later in the Old Testament into the prophets, and especially in Jeremiah, we're told that one of the reasons God makes threats of judgment is actually to jar us, to kind of wake us up, to get our attention, so that we would actually say, I need God's mercy. Maybe I'm on the wrong track. In the book of James, we're told that God actually prefers mercy over judgment. I don't know what's any better than that, hearing that God prefers to show people love and forgiveness over judgment. So that's what this passage leaves us with as far as growing and developing our idea of what God's judgment is. It's, um, uh, it is both God saying, I can't have a share in your life, that your own impulses, your own selfish impulses will have their way with you, and, uh, but that does, doesn't have to be that way, that God's opening up a new uh, a solution. Um, but there's also the question for us, though, the other point of how do we internalize this? What do we do with all this talk about God's judgment? And I think uh, verse 4 gives us a little bit of a clue. Uh, it tells us that when Israel heard all this bad news, it says they mourned and no one put on uh, any ornaments. And so there's kind of both these things, the, the mourning and the not putting on the ornaments. And that kind of captures two sides of this. There's kind of a heart thing, an attitude thing that we're supposed to have. And there's something kind of external and something we do even with our bodies that uh, captures what it means to uh, humble ourselves. So what is that? Well, mourning is, is uh, definitely being broken and contrite over our sins. In fact, uh, we just read a confession uh, from Psalm 51 where uh, King David responds to his sin. And it says uh, that the things that please God are a broken heart, uh, excuse me, a broken spirit and a, a broken and contrite heart. So that means in some way that we should be burdened and even pained by the things we do. And I think that in our uh, normal relationships, uh, the things that really bother us and other people when people wrong us is their indifference, right? If someone's gonna bother to be bothered uh, by the ways they hurt us, uh, I feel like that's 90% of a win right there. You know, we're close, we're like in an A. And, um, you know, I've, I've never personally done this, but I've seen other people do this before. And, uh, you know, when you have uh, friends and maybe especially spouses, they're having an argument. And uh, you're, you're thinking to yourself, oh, gosh, I want this argument to get over with. And you throw out a really, like, contrived apology. You know, you're like, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> you know? And uh, your spouse, your partner knows that it's contrived. And, uh, and what's, the, what's the thing they say to you? They say, 
you didn't really mean it. That's not a real apology. You need to have a real apology, and then you try and muster up a feeling for a real apology, and it's another contrived apology. But what we hate, though, is that people aren't being bothered. They're not owning up to the ways uh, that they've actually wronged us. And this is what God wants us to do. This is, uh, God wants us to simply say, I'm owning up to my wrongs, and it actually bothers me. The way I hurt you actually upsets me. But there's this other stuff, this stripping of their ornaments. So what, is an, what are these ornaments? Well, they did pillage the Egyptians, right? They took all their rings, their you know, uh, fancy jewelry, all this stuff. And they were a bunch of slave people who had all this jewelry, and they're probably wearing it around, uh, probably a little awkward even in the way they wear it. And, uh, but they're very proud of it. And it's a source of pride for them. And they... Um, uh, for them, it's, it's, it's a way of, uh, it's a status thing. It's a way of, uh, of saying that they're important, that they have value and significance in the community. And to remove uh, these ornaments uh, would have been a way of humbling themselves physically with their bodies. And uh, there's this other component of what we have to do in our repentance and our humbling is it's not just about feelings, it's not just about, you know, uh, whatever else, these internal things. It's also about doing something with our bodies. And uh, in, in some ways, I don't really know what that means, <laughs> to be totally honest with you. And uh, I think what that maybe means is we shouldn't, you know, have, you know, if we do something off, we, we shouldn't go to, you know, parties five nights in a row or something like that. Maybe it would be hard to be mourning and be partying at the same time. Um, but I, I, one thing that certainly came to mind was um, that throughout Scripture, a very uh, appropriate way to respond to our sin is fasting. And uh, I don't know uh, if that sounds strange or familiar or, or whatever else, but um, we did a little men's ministry retreat earlier this year, involved some fasting, and um, uh, I walked away from that and said, I want to figure out how to incorporate fasting more into my uh, regular uh, spiritual life. And I, I'm still figuring it out. It's awkward, it's clumsy, and, uh, but definitely one thing I've been doing is uh, trying to connect fasting to repentance. In fact, this is very biblical. It's in, it's in Joel 2. And um, in fact, it even goes so far to say that actually our fasting is our repentance. So kind of interesting. But, uh, and I've found that one of the things kind of uh, trying and stumbling through this process has been that there's a kind of a logic to it. And the logic is this, that I am both a heart and a body. I'm a soul and a, and a, and a flesh and... And that uh, for my whole person to enter into mourning, to be humbled before God, uh, one of the ways I can do that is actually by fasting. And here's the logic. It's that just as my soul and heart experience discomfort and pain, my body's also experiencing discomfort and pain. And, and that as, as I'm kind of, uh, it's difficult for me as I'm, I'm burdened, my body is also kind of being burdened in a way. In fact, there's even kind of a gospel logic in all this that, that as we're weak, as we're vulnerable, as we're feeling empty, uh, that's when God is, is most near and most present to us. That's when we're in a position of strength. And, uh, and so uh, I, I think this, this internal, external mourning, fasting, uh, is certainly something that uh, connects to uh, responding to ju God's judgment. But it's not only that we have to do something, it's that uh, we have to look to God for something. And so there's, there's us doing something and us looking to God for something. And it's worth noting that this wilderness experience of, um, of uh, Israel in, in the Sinai wilderness is a very powerful image for the New Testament. 
And it becomes this very uh, pervasive image for explaining their own experiences and who Jesus was and, and the church. And uh, what we're told is that we're kind of pilgrim. We're a kind of wilderness wanderer. And we're looking for a promised land. And, but somewhere in the story, God's going to come. And his coming involves judgment. It means that uh, we're going to be held accountable for all the things that we've done, good or bad. And uh, the, the promise in this is that as we face God's judgment, his accountability, we'll also find that Christ is our friend. Christ the judge is also Christ our friend. And uh, I, I don't think this uh, should be overlooked or, or uh, smoothed over because um, it's a, kind of a big deal. <laughs> and I was, uh, I've, um, I, I've uh, only been to court once, and it was for a speeding ticket. And, um, you know, it was, uh, speeding tickets are kind of boring things, and, you know, you might think that this would be an insignificant thing, but I was very anxious. I was very anxious, very nervous the whole time. And I'm talking with the judge, and he's talking to me, and I'd never met the guy. And he never met me, and he knew nothing about me. And um, I was thinking to myself, how different that whole experience would have been if that judge would have been a friend. Think about that. Think about if that judge was somebody that I grew up with, that I knew my whole life, that uh, had been with me through all the highs and lows. I know he had my back. And imagine that now that judge has to say something about this speeding ticket. And uh, don't ask me how fast I was going. <laughs> but it was, uh, you know, it would be a very different experience having that, having Christ, uh, having that judge be a friend. And I think there's a little bit of this is what it's like for us uh, looking to the future, knowing that Christ will one day, uh, we'll be sitting in front of him, uh, having him judge our lives. We know that uh, it will be a friend, um, somebody who says, I've been with you through all the hard things and all the, the I've celebrated the great things with you. But it's uh, not enough that uh, Christ is judged because uh, what if he's not a friend? And uh, that's another thing, that uh, Christ might not be a friend, that he might actually be a stranger. And it would be a very different experience to uh, have all of our life's deeds, our public things, our secret things, all made known to a total stranger. And that would be kind of a, a scary experience. And so that leads to our last point uh, of what is it, uh, what do we do, and what is this judge going to say to us? And I think if, if uh, Christ is your friend, uh, he'll say something very unexpected. Something will be kind of, it'll be beautiful and shocking at the same time. We'll have the, literally the thousands of things that we've done laid bare. And uh, I don't know what that's going to be like. It's, the Bible kind of talks about it in a pretty poetic way. But it says all these things we've done will be laid bare in front of us. And then Christ is going to look at us and he's going to say, you are completely innocent. He's going to say, in fact, you have done everything I wanted you to do. And we're going to be like, me? <laughs> Did you just see, see all the stuff we just, we just went through, all the stuff we just talked about I'd done? He's going to say, no, no, no. You are pure. You are innocent. And that's the beautiful thing about God's judgment is that he's gone to the most dramatic steps possible to spare us his judgment. 
And he's become the object of his own judgment so that we might be the object of his love. His justice demanded that our sin could not be ignored or overlooked. That itself would be an injustice. But he suffered the injustice of receiving our own judgment so that we might be spared his justice. And all we have to do is look at Jesus after we look at ourselves and say, he did this for me. And this is what we need to know most about our question of understanding God's judgment. Then in Christ, we see the severity of his judgment, but also the depth of his love. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great love, the love of your son, that he would give up honor and privilege, that he uh, suffered on the cross, that uh, he has ransomed us uh, for yourself. We pray that these, these mercies would be fresh and new this morning, uh, this week. Pray that you would make us joyful, faithful servants in your kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we respond to God's word by uh, professing our faith, saying together the words of the Apostles' Creed. So let's uh, stand together as we recite these words. And let me invite you to say these words with conviction. We say these words to the Lord. We say them to each other. We say them to a watching world. We say them to ourselves, that this is what we believe. And so, uh, Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into the grave. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Before we uh, turn to a time of prayer, just a couple brief announcements. Uh, the first is that uh, we have a, a new uh, membership process for uh, Christ Church Bellingham. If you've been coming to Christ Church and you haven't become a member yet, we used to offer a class twice a year, once in the spring and once in the fall. And if you missed a class, you'd have to wait six months to become a member. And then often this class is, you know, four classes. If you missed one, then, you know, then you'd say, well, can I become a member? I missed one or two of the classes. So what we've done is we've recorded all these classes. We made them into 12 short videos that are online. If you go onto our website, uh, you go, I think it's under the Grow tab, you'll see membership. It gives instructions for how to become a member. Watch these 12 videos. I think they're about 10 to 15 minutes each one. They give you an introduction of what Christ Church is all about. And then you can email our uh, office coordinator, Amy, and say, hey, I'd like to sign up for a meeting with a couple of elders. And elders talk to you about, hear your story, and uh, uh, learn about who you are, answer any questions you have about our church. And so uh, if you'd like to become a member of Christ Church, go online, uh, watch the videos, sign up. We would love to welcome you into our church community. Also, if you're new, and even if you, maybe you're not ready to become a member, we have an online communication tool called Church Community Builder, 
which is how we communicate about what's happening in the church, the needs, prayer requests that are happening in the church. And if you're not on church community, we want everyone on there so that uh, people can get your contact if they want to reach out to you, invite you over, or connect with you. So uh, you also can go on our website and sign up for Church Community Builder. All of our announcements are on the uh, back page of the bulletin, so you can uh, turn there to see what's happening here at Christ Church. So uh, that's what we have for announcements. Uh, we're going to turn now to the Lord in prayer. Holy Father in heaven, we bless your name. We bless you at all times, whether in abundance and wealth or in fear and doubt, whether in suffering or joy, your praise shall continually be in our mouths. Because those who look to you are radiant and they will never be put to shame. And blessed are all who take refuge in you. And so, Father of all wisdom, we pray for your blessing of love on our church this morning. We pray for the Wynn family and thank you for the love that you've shown to so many through them in their home. Many have come to taste and see that the Lord is good. We thank you for the calling you've placed on Ryan's life and the vision you have given him for quality and ethical endodontic care here in Bellingham. May you receive his work as service to you and your kingdom. And would you sustain and strengthen him in that vision that he would not weary in doing good. For the eyes of the Lord are toward those who do what is right. We also thank you for the calling you placed on Megan's life as mom and teacher, and we ask that you would clothe her with diligence and patience and wisdom as she prepares her children to serve you in the world through homeschooling. May your spirit lead them into deep, into wide conversations throughout the day about you and your world, and would this education be a joy for both Megan and the kids, and would these conversations often lead to the grace that is theirs in Jesus? Would the hearts of Dylan, Evan, Grayson, and Morgan each cherish the name of Christ and know deeply their need for him? Lord, bless their home and Ryan and Megan's marriage with kindness, forgiveness, love, and grace. Gracious Father, we also pray for our sister, Tina Squires. We thank you for bringing her to our church, and we thank you for the clear love she has for you and your kingdom. May her faith impact us as a community and would you continue to deepen her faith and assure her of your never failing presence in her life. We ask for your mercy to her friend Crystal who is recovering from a severe car accident. May the angel of the Lord encamp around her and deliver her. We also ask for your mercy to Tina and the rest of her family as they continue to grieve the loss of her grandpa and grandma. Give them both the tears of Jesus from the tomb of Lazarus and the hope of Jesus from the tomb of the resurrection. Lord, you are near to the brokenhearted. And give Tina's heart peace as she walks through this season of transition with her brother Chris moving. Our Lord, we pray for your blessing this morning on Jay Stoms and his family serving you in South Africa. Would you open doors for the gospel and sustain his ministry? May those who hear the name of Jesus 
receive the gospel with open and soft hearts. And now, Father, it is our joy to be called your beloved children. And so we pray as your beloved children, using the words our Lord taught his disciples, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Our offering verse this morning comes from Mark chapter 12. It says, uh, Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor woman, or poor widow, uh, came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor woman has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance.